Hey, everyone. Welcome back to 51%'s Crypto Research Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. Ted out on Sishu, the CEO of Zillica. Zillica is branded as the scalable blockchain for high-throughput consensus computing. The project's gotten a lot of buzz recently, and it's set to launch its mainnet just this week. So this is a very timely episode. Sishu is a very articulate speaker and covers everything you need to know about Zillica pre-mainnet launch in 60 minutes. For those who haven't checked out 51%'s research, it's read by the top leaders in the space. We cut down the endless amount of news and info into actionable analysis released every other week. We just released our interoperability report where we argue that the majority of smaller chains will likely die off. And in part two, we attempt to crown an interoperability winner. Add your email on 51pct.io for our alerts or join using coupon code TOKEN for an awesome deal for the first few who sign up. Trust me, you're going to want the alert on who we crown as the winner. We put a lot of time into this report. With that, here's my conversation with Sishu. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. Today, I'm thrilled to have on the co-founder of Zaliqua, Sishu. Sishu, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So, Sishu, tell us how you got started in crypto. Okay. Um, I mean, I officially started to work on the blockchain technology back in 2016. You know, at that time, I was working on this uh, private blockchain deployments on a bone trading platform for the Singapore Stock Exchange. But of course, you know, years before that, I, I was already interested in the Bitcoin technology itself, and I was even trying to mine some Bitcoins. Um, but it was really, you know, 2016, I started to look into uh, the technology, you know, building things under the hood uh, to make a very scalable blockchain. And then after some projects for the private deployments in 2017, we felt that we were ready to launch it at a much larger scale as a public blockchain. That's how the project Zilliqa got started at that time. That makes a lot of sense. Well, for those who are unaware of the project, can you give us just your elevator pitch on what Zilliqa is? Yeah, uh, Zilliqa is a new blockchain that provides high throughput and high security. Uh, it provides high throughput via different pieces of new, new or innovative technologies, uh, especially sharding. And then on the other hand, it, it makes smart contracts much safer by having a new smart contract language that allows people to write um, their business logic into the contracts and then have sort of mathematical ways to prove certain properties were always whole. So uh, these are sort of the two unique offerings of this new blockchain platform. That's super interesting. And um, for those who follow uh, Tezos, I mean, I think that they do a similar way of kind of testing whether or not code, um, you know, through formal verification, if, if the code is legit or not. Is that kind of the sort of thing you guys are doing or is it a little different? Yeah, I think the high level concept uh, is probably very similar. And uh, I'm pretty confident that uh, the smart contract language we have called Scylla uh, is uh, quite mature at this stage, actually. We have several, you know, example smart contracts. We have also started to verify some of the ex these examples uh, using Coq. That's, that's awesome. Well, I mean, the formal verification could save from some pretty serious accidents, right? I mean, people point to the DAO, and if that, was, if that code was verified, people say that wouldn't have happened. 
Yeah, that's the point. I mean, of course, by by designing a new language, Scylla, we already got the chance to, let's say, eliminate some of the known vulnerabilities, including uh, that one in the DAO attack. But uh, you always need to be mindful that there will be unknown vulnerabilities that you know nobody knows today. So that's why uh, the framework for formal verification uh, provides an opportunity that although your programs may be buggy in some sense, and you don't need to you know really worry about it because the only thing you care. Uh, is that certain important properties will always hold, no matter whether you have bugs, no matter whether these bugs can be exploited by attacks. That's that's super interesting. So just diving back into Soligo, I mean, what consensus mechanism are you guys using? You're using proof of work today? It's it's slightly uh, different from some of the consensus mechanisms in other blockchains. It, it it's sort of a combination between proof of work and uh, something called practical presenting for tolerance. So the idea is this: let's say we are not doing a public blockchain; we are doing a permission blockchain, and then there are only ten guys who can participate in the consensus, uh, and we know exactly who these ten guys are. Then we can run something like. PBFT, practical presenting for tolerance, is sort of a message-based protocol where you know everyone talks to everyone and then spread the news that that uh, um, like others are, are sharing certain pieces of information with them after several rounds of such communications, and then they will reach a consensus. So that's you know the high-level idea of PBFT. But if you look at Zilliqa, we are a public blockchain, uh, which means. Anyone can join the network, or anyone can at least try to join the network. Uh, we do not want, like, suddenly all the bad guys to find some way to fake a huge amount of identities and then join the network. Because when that happens, during this practical presenting for tolerance process, uh, the bad guys may outnumber the good guys, so they will outvote all the good guys. So that's why we need to add a little bit of sort of cost for them to join the network uh, as a new identity. So that's why in Zilliqa, we will run uh, proof of work periodically to allow any node to, to try to submit a result. And then if they match certain conditions, they will be able to join the network. And after they join the network, their identity as, identities are sort of already established. And then they only need to do uh, PBFD to run the consensus for several rounds before sort of the next call for a new uh, proof of work. Got it. Um, is there, I mean, this might be a, like a dumb question, but are there any concerns with the identities being known or, or is this not like a KYC process? This is more of just testing whether or not the node is legit or not. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I say identities, uh, these are not like real world identities. These are just identities, um, given to you after you have run a successful proof of work process. So it's, you know, just a you know string, things like that. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, there's a ton of buzz around proof of stake today. I mean, with Ethereum switching over, uh, Tezos implementing it, EOS and, and others. Um, I mean, are there any plans for Zilliqa to, to switch over to proof of stake? Or are you guys happy with what you have now with the mix between proof of work and practical business fault tolerance? You know, to us, this is both a technical question, but also a philosophical question. Uh, I would say at this stage, uh, we, are, we are staying with proof of work. But you see that there are so many people who are very fascinated about uh, proof of stake, especially delegated proof of stake depots. So there are definitely very important merits in uh, depots protocols, especially more recent proposals. And we are very interested in that, you know, from the research perspective. We, we want to fully understand what are the fundamentals behind uh, different depots protocols. And as part of the research, we may even, you know, come up with 
our different insights in terms of that. But uh, switching from POW to DPOS will be a much longer term decision we have to make over time. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of buzz just between, you know, it kind of solves the principal agent problem a little bit because instead of having miners on one side and token holders on the other, you kind of have token holders as the ones securing the network. So it's definitely interesting, but I, I guess I see your point on why you don't need it here. It's it's a very fascinating idea, I would say, you know. So it's just like there are some challenges that need to be fully addressed or at least need to be fully understood and acknowledged before we feel very comfortable of switching over. Got it. Uh, well, you know, just switching back to your performance, I mean, you guys are clearly, your throughput is obviously much faster than existing blockchains. I think on your website, you have something like 2,800 transactions per second, whereas Ethereum and Bitcoin are between, you know, 5 and 15. And I think you guys um, achieved this through sharding, which is, you know, getting a ton of buzz recently. Um, do you have sharding live on your network today? Yes, it's, it's sort of live in our test net. And, you know, we are going to launch our mainnet next week. So I guess the version we are running now is going to be very similar to the version that we are going to launch for our mainnet. And I think we already got most of the sharding piece done um, several months ago. Got it. That's interesting. I mean, I think one of the hardest parts about sharding is that communication between the different shards. And I, I think... You know, Ethereum with Serenity is trying to address that and Polkadot and Cosmos. And we just did a deep dive on interoperability. And it's kind of the crux of the argument on whether or not that can be achieved. I mean, is that an issue for you guys or do you do you have that solved now? It's definitely a challenge for us as well. Uh, once you are thinking along that line of sharding, uh, you know, there, there may be quite uh, different ways we actually shard the network. But still, this sort of inter-shard or cross-shard communication is going to be a challenge. But there is some fundamental difference between our sharding mechanism and uh, Ethereum's proposed plan of sharding, um, such that in the Zilliqa sharding, the states uh, are still shared across different shards. So every single node running consensus in the Zilliqa network still has a knowledge of the global state. So in that sense, yes, there will still be cross-shard communications, but the, the amount of cross-shard communications required for Zilliqa is going to be much less compared to that in the Ethereum's new sharding scheme. So that gives us sort of you know some leverage. But then, of course, we are still um, very mindful in terms of being uh, very efficient in dealing with even the remaining part of the cross-shard communications. Uh, that's why when we shard different things, you need to already think about uh, the way you shard will actually determine, in some sense, how much cross-shard communications you will have to have. Got it. Um, that's interesting. So if, if we just walk through like a sample transaction, I mean, is is like, does a smart contract live on one shard in Zilliqa or are we just sharing transactions across shards? Like what exactly happens between the shards when we have a transaction on Zilliqa? So um, you can look at transactions in different categories, right? You can have simple payment-like transactions. Basically, I'm sending five zeros to you. So these transactions are, are pretty easy to, to shard in a sense because you can look at, let's say, the destination address or you know look at both the sender and destination. And then you can actually allocate uh, such transactions into different shards. And usually that's fine. Um, then then that, that's the end of the story. The, the complication comes when you involve smart contracts. Um, so, so these are sort of the more sophisticated cases. And we actually look at the specifics 
of the interactions between, let's say, a client or a user with different types of uh, smart contracts. So sometimes we will be able to just, you know, shard a smart contract into one of the shards. But sometimes we do have to say, uh, have one of the many mechanisms to deal with the situation where when you try to process a call to a smart contract, it involves several shards. So that still happens. Um, so there are different ways to deal with that. You can have something called, you know, um, two-phase uh, commit protocol. And uh, you can have sort of, in our case, you have one special shard who are going to just specifically deal with all such cases where multiple shards are involved. And you can also have sort of asynchronous ways to, to deal with such communication uh, requirements. For example, you can process something in one shard, and then you communicate something like a receipt or a message to other shards, and then other shards can, can take over in the next round and, and finish the processing. So there, there are different ways of dealing with that. In the manner we are going to launch, we are, we are taking sort of the second approach, which is that we have a special shard in our architecture called directory service shard. So this shard is going to process some of the more complicated portions uh, of smart contract interactions. Got it. Um, and, and that main kind of shard, I mean, is that comparable to like the relay chain on Polkadot or Cosmos or like the beacon chain on Ethereum or is that just like is that like a main chain for you guys, or or how exactly does how exactly do you decide, um, you know, which shard controls what? Is that more of the developer's decision, or is that kind of that just happens on the platform automatically? So the decision of you know which node goes to which shard and which transaction uh, or which call to a smart contract goes to which shard is a protocol decision. That means it's, it's, it's algorithmic. Um, so regarding your your, uh, your earlier question. What is the difference between you know this kind of sharding and multi-chain or inter-chain architecture? I think I think it, it sometimes is getting a little blurred. The boundaries can getting a little blurred, but still, when we talk about sharding, usually we mean different parts of the network, but still forming the same consistent network. So um, when we talk about multi-chains, so so these chains may interact with each other, but let's say for whatever reason, one chain cannot talk to another chain. For, for a day or even for a week, these parallel chains can still function as per normal. So that's, that's sort of the more uh, isolated model of multi-chains. But with sharding, that's not the case. If a shard cannot talk to another shard for a few weeks, uh, then, then this chain basically cannot function. So there is still some qualitative difference, I would say, between multi-chain architecture and sharding within the same blockchain network. Got it. That's super interesting. And, you know, Sishu, what's your take on, you know, I don't know how, how in depth you guys look at this stuff, but, you know, what's your take on Polkadot and Cosmos and, and these interoperability protocols? The, the only reason I ask is because we just wrote a deep dive on it, uh, part one on it, and I find it fascinating. But I'm always concerned on whether or not these protocols can, you know, pull off interoperability. And that kind of overlaps with sharding a lot because we're talking about different chains or different shards here. And it seems like you guys are, you know, going to launch your mainnet with tech that seems to be working. Um, you know, do you guys view these as competitors or do you view them as, you know, you're kind of eating their lunch now? Or how do you view that? I think uh, interoperability between different chains is a very important problem. And it's sort of a quite um, orthogonal problem, I would put it, than, than sharding. Because we are still pretty much focusing on 
making long chain faster. Uh, but their job is really to think about when you have multiple chains. I think we have to accept that fact, like it or not, we'll have multiple chains in the foreseeable future. How do you efficiently and securely uh, integrate different chains? Or maybe integrating is, is a too strong a word. Maybe how do you let these chains interact when they need to? Uh, so these are quite different problems. Whether, you know, let's say the fundamental technologies or mechanisms of these to, to solving these two problems could have some overlap, maybe. You know, sometimes I say the boundaries of the technologies themselves may be blurred and, you know, one can learn from another. But the problems they are trying to solve and the deployments of these technologies are still fundamentally different. I think, I think uh, interoperability between chains are very important. But on the other hand, I think the, the whole blockchain ecosystem at the moment is sort of facing some common challenges that, to me, uh, are more urgent to address. So, for instance, uh, we really need to want to uh, see uh, wider adoptions and want adoptions either into the mainstream industries, you know, or just, you know, anyone on the street who should be able to uh, use a blockchain in some sense. So when that happens, you are really going to be burdened by issues that, you know, things are segregated across different chains. And then interoperability will be a much more urgent issue to address at that time. But I think it's, it's, it's important to start looking at these, you know, technical challenges even today because you can't, you can't wait until then. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Well, just zooming out, I mean, do you guys consider yourself more of a competitor to public blockchains or do you guys consider yourself more of a competitor to, say, private or consortium blockchains? Um, you know, when I was starting my research, I kind of saw a lot of similarities to kind of like what AWS and Microsoft are doing um, just because of your throughput. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts there and where you think you guys fit in. Oh, I think Zilliqa is entirely a public blockchain. Um as, as of today, we know whether tomorrow someone can take our code, modify here and there, enhance certain features and make it a private chain. That's another story. But, you know, as of today, Silica is uh, entirely a, a public blockchain. So this AWS thing is, is just really, you know, a deployment choice. So, for example, you don't have to run our nodes on AWS. You can run it on your laptop uh, for the CPU part. And I, I, I usually run a laptop. Uh, at home just to connect to our test stand to, to help people diagnose, you know, you don't have to use AWS. But if you think about uh, the practical aspect that as a team who, who is sort of testing with thousands of nodes, if you don't use a cloud infrastructure and you need to sort of buy so many machines and then somehow you know, launch these machines and tear down these machines on a regular basis, it's just not realistic. That's why we choose AWS because they provide very uh, convenient ways, especially with Kubernetes. You know, you can you can launch all these instances, tear them down. You know, send files to them. We have sort of developed a whole suite of uh, scripts to interact with all these machines in a very efficient way. So that's sort of like an operational issue. Um, from the gist of it, anyone can potentially run a computer as long as it has enough, let's say, GPU power. Uh, to run proof of work to join the Silicon Network. Got it. And I, I have to ask, because there's just so much talk between the centralized cloud providers and, and their interplay with blockchain. I mean, why did you guys choose AWS over, say, Microsoft or, to a lesser extent, IBM? Uh, I would say AWS um, interfaces are still very convenient to use. Um, you know, we, we, we just sort of had no issue in developing add-on scripts to interact with this AWS infrastructure, and we really love it. 
Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Well, one of the main questions I think people have are, you know, what's the value proposition of using Zilliqa over other uh, public blockchains? And I, I think that what you're saying here is the sharding and security type factors. But, you know, are there other trade-offs you guys are making? Or do you think that you might be more centralized? I know I didn't ask how many nodes are required to run the network today, but that's always an interesting point here. So decentralization is our goal. Um, so we have enough number of nodes, for example. I think we have the largest uh, number of nodes probably among the recently uh, launched new chains. Uh, at launch of our mainnet, we are going to have 2,400 nodes. So this is sizable by itself, but uh, you know I need to explain a little bit on this number. So these 2,400 nodes are going to be backed by a much larger um, number of GPUs. Because we want to set some, you know, reasonably uh, secure uh, difficulty to make sure that this proof of work network cannot easily be attacked. So these two thousand four hundred nodes are sort of just the CPUs, and every CPU will be um, packed with, let's say, fifty GPUs. So that's sort of the size we are talking about. It's it's a quite sizable network, I would say. Um, and on the other hand, uh, going forward, I think this network is is deemed to grow. And whenever it grows, the throughput will be even higher. So I, I do not think that decentralization is going to be one issue to be concerned about. But of course, if you compare Zilliqa with today's you know most popular smart contract platforms such as uh, Ethereum, uh, when um, certain users want to compare which platforms to go with when they divide uh, when they develop their um, decentralized applications, I think there can still be trade offs. Right. For for example, if they want an immediate outreach to a huge number, huge amount of let's say uh, retail users, then maybe Ethereum is the platform to go. But on the other hand, if they really want to build a, a very serious um, business driven de- uh, decentralized application um, with sort of future proof in terms of scalability, in terms of security, I think Zilliqa will be a very good choice for them. Got it. That's super interesting. And that question was from Gregory Rocco uh, over at the Alpine team. So I appreciate uh, him providing that question. And is it, Sishu, just back to the decentralization question, you, you gave a great overview there. Um, how do you think about decentralization along the other factors, though? I mean, I know that, you're, you know, I hope I know you hope the node base will grow into the thousands. But, you know, how do you view like the actual code being decentralized? And, you know, I know we didn't get into governance yet about how decisions are made. But, you know, how do you view the other aspects of decentralization for Zilliqa? I think it's going to be a challenge. You know, we, we have to sort of acknowledge this is a challenge. This is not an achievement we already have today or next week. So, for example, even from the technical perspective, when we launch this network of 2,400 nodes, we don't know how many nodes will come from the community. Uh, the team is sort of ready to spawn as many nodes as necessary to keep the basic security level of the network. And going forward, we really want to uh, have more community nodes running the network. And on the other hand, uh, we are going to you know make some more announcements on the details of these networks. So, for example, there was there will be certain infrastructures that will be um, more centralized than let's say we would like to have in the beginning and we need to take more time to sort of decentralize different components and then even from the technological perspective decentralization or all these you know sort of mechanisms sometimes require a lot of work it's actually a technical innovation in making things efficient secure and at the same time decentralized and then coming to this point of governance 
I think this is also something that we are going to learn from other projects. I imagine that in the beginning, uh, the Zilliger team will still have like a relatively large influence in terms of which features will get prioritized and when do we run the next you know, uh, big upgrade on the protocol or things like that. But going forward, we really want to engage as much as possible the community members to join the conversation. And once the mining network becomes you know, very decentralized, really the Zilliger team cannot just force or impose decisions on everyone. I, I personally imagine that uh, we are probably going to be some sort of governance model like, like Ethereum. Because at this stage, we don't have plan to, let's say, let uh, token holders uh, have voting rights. Because sometimes, you know, if you give token holders voting rights, some people will say, oh, you, you look like a securities token. So that's something we are very mindful uh, of. That's why I think in the foreseeable future, it's going to be some kind of you know, community-driven, discussion-based, proposal-based approach like Ethereum today. Got it. That's that's interesting, Sushu. And I guess the question there is, um, I, I guess I always have a concern that it's very hard to implement governance systems after a project gets really big. Um, you know, Zero X as a roadmap to add, you know, actual control for token holders into their network, but they've yet to do it. And, you know, sub- implementing, say, token holder control in Bitcoin would be extremely hard, right? So I'm just wondering, I mean, do you think that it might be really hard to implement a governance system as your network grows, or do you think that it's the right way because you don't exactly know how you want to do it yet, and it's it's you know more conservative to wait? I would sort of I would like to qualify your statement a little bit. Uh, I would agree to say that it's going to be harder and harder to implement an on-chain governance model once the network becomes bigger and more mature. Um, but we are not aiming for on-chain governments at this stage. You know, what I just described earlier was sort of a very, you know, soft touch mechanism. Sometimes it's very manual. You know, you are even supposed to meet people in person or have, uh, or, or have phone calls, you know, just to discuss these ideas. So I think as long as we are, are open-minded and we always try to in- engage the community, we make major decisions. I, I also do not see that whether whether your network is larger or small, whether you know your your protocol is more mature or less mature would make like a huge difference in that sense. In some sense, we are we are being more practical here. We also feel that if you want to implement a perfect on-chain governance protocol, it's going to be groundbreaking, it's going to be more ideal for for everyone, but we just just don't know how to do that at this stage. That's super interesting. Now, you, your specifics make a lot more sense. Um, and I think that's kind of the route that Ethereum's going, where they just keep everything kind of off-chain and in a more abstract kind of decision-making process, uh, which makes a lot of sense. And, you know, my, my friend Christian Kaz, uh, Christian Kaz underscore on Twitter, uh, that's his Twitter name, he brought up a good point when I was asking him before on, you know, keeping a team centralized, kind of like near protocol, which I also had on the podcast their goal is kind of to keep the team centralized so that they can move a lot faster and grow the network without having to, you know, ask the network for every decision. Um, do you feel that Zilliqa is kind of, you know, going the same route there? I think it's a process. Um, so I think in the beginning it will be very centralized. If you look at our team, let's say our physical team, in the beginning everyone 
was in the same you know small office in Singapore. Now over time, we will have to expand the team um, to the global scale. Now we have people across different continents in different cities. Um, you know that's just how it works. You can't say everyone has to come to the Singapore office. It just doesn't work if you want to attract more talents. And also, I think for decision making of the um, let's say main milestones or priorities of the project. In the beginning, it would just be, you know, maybe the Zilliga team making most of the decisions. Uh, I think over time, it's just not going to be feasible for, you know, us to always make the decisions. So so I see, yes, I agree that there's a trade-off between, let's say, centralization and uh, and uh, um, efficiency or inefficiency. Um, and my personal take is that in the beginning, it will be more centralized and more efficient. But this thing is not going to sustain for 10 years. So over time, we have to find ways to actively and efficiently engage the community. So although the decision-making process will become you know, less efficient in some sense, uh, but I think that's, that's the right way to go. You know, Decentralization is, is, is in the spirit of blockchain. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's switch over to some of the fun stuff. Uh, you're planning to launch your mainnet uh, next week and you have your testnet live. So let's get into the testnet. How's the third version of your testnet going? Any issues, any, you know, positive surprises when you're uh, running it? We, we don't really have too many surprises, I would say. Uh, so it's a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we of course would like to have a surprise that everything runs smoothly and you don't need to touch anything and just let it run. But the reality is that you always have, you know, issues here and there, especially like we spend a lot of time uh, working on some of the suggestions given by our different security auditing firms. So we really thank them for their very, very helpful feedback. So sometimes, you know, their suggestions or comments are not, not really regarding a bug or vulnerability per se, but sometimes they say hey, for, for, you know, best practice, you have to code this way. You'd better refactor your code a little bit. So we actually spend some time doing that as well for the recent version of the test net. But of course, we, we, we can't finish everything. Actually, I think there's a lot of work to be done post the mainnet, mainnet launch. But we try to get a version uh, during the testnet phase. So that's going to be sort of uh, running and that's going to be secure. That's going to be uh, able to sustain at least the initial traffic in that sense. Got it. That makes sense. And is there anything new in the mainnet that you're launching next week that's not in the testnet? Or is it basically the same thing? Oh, you, you, you basically cannot have a new feature uh, in the mainnet that is sort of not very well testing the testnet. So uh, as our testnet keeps evolving towards a manual launch, eventually that will just be the same version. So actually we have already had our code freeze for the manual launch. We have a whole list of features that I want to do or we want to do, but we have to put them on hold at the moment because if you keep adding new features, then you will never be able to launch the manual. So you have to put a, you know, a hard store somewhere and say, okay, this, this is what we are going to launch for the manual. For all the other interesting features, we'll do it after the launch. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, developers always have a hard time deciding what to include and what not to include. Um, and and when you when you launch your mainnet, you know, what should we expect out of the launch? I mean, is this going to be like, are there nodes ready to go here, or you know, how's the community preparing for this launch? I know that you know, Grin and Beam just launched, and they kind of had communities like ready to go. Supposedly, Grin had. You know, near a hundred million bucks in in uh, venture money for miners. I don't know if I believe that number, but 
um, they both got prepared pretty well for their launches. Yeah, yeah. I think we are trying our best. Uh, for example, recently we are trying to speak with um, miners who might be interested in joining the initial mining network. We want to secure some reasonable amount of mining power. Uh, for the first uh, few weeks, post manual launch is going to be a bootstrapping phase because you know we know this network may not be super stable this network may be um, the target of potential attacks so that's why we have this bootstrapping phase to protect the network um, and sort of the the, the uh, benefits of miners because once a miner is launched miners will start mining and then they will start going uh, they will start to get rewards but no transactions or smart contracts will be processed during the, this bootstrapping phase. And then after some time, I guess it will be like a few weeks, uh, the bootstrapping phase will automatically end um, according to the logic we, we, we code inside the protocol. And then the network will just become like normal. So it will have all the features we have talked about. You know, people can send transactions, deploy smart contracts, and uh, all these things will be processed uh, under that sharding mechanism. And then the Scylla smart contract language is ready, and then people can can program. And if they know how to verify certain properties, they can they can they can use the formal way uh, to verify the properties. So it's going to be like a full fledged network after the bootstrapping phase. Got it. That makes sense. And you know, just a general question for you guys: How do you incentivize miners to join the network? Is the block reward similar to Bitcoin, or, or how exactly is that going to work on the mainnet? At the high level, is similar. Basically, you contribute to the network, then you will get rewards. But there are also some fundamental differences. So number one is uh, in, in the Bitcoin or Ethereum mining network, it's about the winner taking all. So that's why people you know, have to pull together and then they have to um, contribute their own mining resources. And then once a block, reward is awarded uh, they were they were divide you know according to certain rules so here um here in in Zilliqa, the reward is slightly more spread because it's not you know the winner taking all all the nodes let's say 2400 nodes uh, eventually in the network will be able to share a portion of the mining reward for every block mine that's one difference Another difference is um, I mentioned that there are two sort of processes in the mining protocol. One is that you need to do proof of work periodically to join the network. And two is that after you join the network, you can participate in a practical presenting PBFT process to run the consensus. So we have separate mining rewards for these two aspects. If you are able to win the POW and join the network, you get a small portion. And then if you keep contributing to the uh, several rounds of consensus, uh, you will be able to get a bigger portion. Um, so that's these are the, some of the differences of you know our mining rewards than, let's say, Bitcoin or Ethereum today. Got it. That's interesting. And this, so the second part of your rewards where uh, block rewards are shared with the whole network, that's kind of like similar to you guys having a giant mining pool kind of built into your network to begin with instead of where in Bitcoin people have to join mining pools to split rewards, right? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, if you have, let's say, 50 modern GPUs today, you can be a node yourself and you will be able to get you know the rewards. If you don't have 50 you know modern GPUs, you only have one GPU card, let's say, you probably need to um, group with other people um, to have you know that minimum number of GPUs to become one node. 
Got it. That makes sense. That's interesting. Well, let's go over. I mean, I mean, back to the main net though, when you guys launched, are you going to, I know you said that you're planning to support a lot of future or great features, which is interesting. You know, what's on your roadmap to release in the future that won't be released in this mainnet? I, I know you alluded to smart contracts and stuff like that. So there are several things. Number one is a task we already know how to do, but we just didn't get enough time to do before the mainnet. We are going to refactor uh, our code a lot. Um, so it, it's for maintainability because if your code is structured in, in a nice way, it's much easier to add new, new features or, you know, even fix issues and things like that. That's something we are going to do. And also, we are uh, fixing many of the parameters uh, for this manual launch in a very conservative way um, because we want, we, want, we want security, we want stability. Um, but over time, we are going to sort of fine-tune many of these parameters uh, post a manual launch. That's going to you know, take some of our effort as well. And then for the Scylla language, uh, we are going to do a lot of enhancements. And even down the road, we are going to um, work on... Uh, compilers to convert some of the other higher level programming languages into Scylla. So when that happens, people don't even have to learn a new language Scylla while still be able being able um, to benefit from the formal verifi- verification features uh, of the language. Got it. That makes sense. And, you know, the formal verification piece is, is really interesting, as we talked about before. Is this, how hard is this for developers to actually use? It's just like a you know, like a, a button they click before they input their code where it, where it checks it for errors, or is this something a little bit more in-depth? I think I think it's not as straightforward as just a button click because um, number one is, you know, it's easier to say that, you know, you have five important properties and then you can verify. But you first need to summarize what are these properties that are critical because if you miss a very important property and then uh, that property turns out to be a vulnerability that can be violated in a sense, then, then you know, the formal verification cannot help you. So you need some expertise in terms of our understanding for this particular type of smart contracts. Uh, what are the important properties we have to verify? That's number one. And number two is that after you summarize them into important properties, you also need a way to um, write, let's say, cock proofs um, to show that these properties will hold. So these are sort of very specialized skill sets. Now, how do we help developers of smart contracts uh, achieve such verification without having to go through all these tough steps? I think uh, as an initial step, we are going to um, issue some of the template smart contracts. Just imagine ERC-20, you know, something like that will be very standardized. You don't have a lot to customize. And then if you follow our template to write smart contracts, and then there will be a sort of a template uh, proof that can show you, you know, at least the basic properties will, will hold. Of course, if you write a, like a very weird smart contract that nobody has seen before, then you probably need to engage like an expert to help you do the verification. So that's sort of the first step. We are going to use templates um, to ease the process. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, back to the developers that we're discussing here, I mean, you guys are using the Scylla programming language. What are the differences on Scylla from, say, Ethereum Solidity or, or even JavaScript, or is this a form of JavaScript? I'm just wondering what the benefits are here. The, the benefits is that um, um, 
the language itself, number one, eliminates certain uh, vulnerabilities, let's say the vulnerability in the DAO hack. And the second thing is, it has to be designed in a certain way so that you can write formal proofs. So otherwise, what you can do is to do formal verification for solidity programs. In theory, that's not impossible, but it's, in practice, that's just much, much di- more difficult than having a, a more tightly structured language like Scylla. So Scylla, the structure of Scylla makes it much easier to do formal verification. So that's why the syntax of Scylla is, is different from Solidity. There's some similarities, um, but but it's it's different. You know, to me, uh, Scylla has some of the elements of the design of something called a functional language. Um, so it's a different sort of need different type of programming language something like ocamo or hasco um so or um, scala so so these are different types of languages sometimes um programmers of c c plus plus or javascript may have a little bit of difficulty in writing um programs in the new style but as someone like myself, I, I was familiar with JavaScript. So when I look at the design and the syntax of Scylla, I feel like there are a lot of parallels between JavaScript and, and, and Scylla. I feel for JavaScript developers, learning Scylla is not going to be difficult. And we actually have proofs because in our team, nobody knew what was Scylla because it was not, not, it was not even invented. But then when we uh, hire our developers, usually they, they just take like two weeks, three weeks before they can easily pick up Scylla. That's that's interesting. And and are all the developers basically in-house at Zilka, or do you guys have a developer community outside of um, say the foundation or Zilka itself? Uh, we we have an in-house team, definitely. You know, most of the protocols are developed in-house. Um, but when we try to enter into adoption, uh, we are engaging different community developers as well. We we have in-house app developer, but you know, we don't have enough resources to develop uh, many apps. We don't even have resources to develop all the wallets. So if you look at these wallets that our community um, has developed, they're, they're they're pretty good. And uh, I think it's it's our mission sort of to keep growing that kind of community developers because eventually it's going to be a decentralized platform for people to use it's not something like everything is is, is on us because that's not going to be a scalable model got it that makes a lot of sense well let's switch to some of the even more fun stuff let's go to you know your use cases and you know where you guys hope to be successful you know you mentioned a few on the site with gaming and advertising and payments I'm interested, you know, what's most interesting to you and, and what are you targeting right now for use cases on Zilliqa? Actually, um, if you have not noticed, we just announced a very interesting initiative today, you know, literally today, a few hours ago. So uh, we are partnering with a few, you know, very good partners uh, to work on a security token exchange. So now this brings to one interesting direction we are looking at, which is about um, asset-backed tokens. So we are interested in offering a tokenization uh, platform on top of Zilliqa for people to issue uh, tokens that are backed by equities or loans, bonds, or even revenue-sharing contracts. And then at the, at, at the same time, we also want a venue for people to trade um, these, these assets um, by having a secondary market. So that's why we uh, started work, working on this um, security token exchange project that just got announced today. So that's something very interesting because if you look at these tokens that have a 
backing in, in the actual assets, uh, I think they are closer to the traditional assets, you know, um, people in the traditional financial services sectors are, are familiar with. So it could drive um, mainstream adoption, adoption in, a, in a very efficient way. And on the other hand, I think once you trade these assets on the blockchain, you really need something to guarantee the security of all the logic governing, you know, the offering and trading. So that's why we think our smart contract language, Scylla, will be a very useful tool for programming uh, such logic for security tokens. So that's one interesting direction. And as you mentioned, uh, digital advertising definitely is also very interesting because there indeed is, is a very strong use case. Uh, you have different players in this space dealing with a very high volume, huge volume of transactions regarding uh, advertisement impressions, and then it's not very straightforward to pick just one player in the in the industry to say, "Hey, now everyone trusts you. You know, you have all the data. We just need to deal with you." That's not very feasible. Um, these guys definitely they work together. They are, they are partners. They do they have some trust between them, but it's best to have like a platform, a, a transparent platform, like that enabled by the blockchain to say, "Okay, now the five of you." you all come onto the same platform. And for data that you guys are comfortable with sharing among each other, you can put such data onto the blockchain and things will just be much more transparent, much more efficient. And even payments between you guys can be automated you know, by programming them into smart contracts. So that's why we are very fascinated with this uh, partnership with Mindshare, uh, Rubicon, and, and MediaMath and others. So this is really one of the kind, I think, type of use case that it has a very strong need for a platform like blockchain. Got it. That's interesting. And just starting with, let's start with the security token exchange you guys just announced. I guess I missed it. It's early here and I know late in your in your time zone, but you know what's so you guys are basically going up against not only ICOs on Ethereum, but you're up against the dozen or so security token companies out there from you know Securitize all the way down all the way over to Polymath. You know, do you think that you guys have a real competitive advantage here, or, or is the point more more so that you're seeing applications built on Zilliqa, and that's basically the goal for you guys here? I think we are a technological platform. Uh, we are very open-minded. I mean, in a sense, whatever we do on the platform, others can do the same thing or they can do different things because, you know, it's a public blockchain. But we really want to drive the usage and adoption of the Zilliqa technological platform. So that's why we think security token is important. Now, I think this space is still very broad. It's still very nascent. I think there's a lot of opportunities for collaboration. I think competition is really not a concern because we also talk to all these guys uh, you just mentioned. I think I think there's always a common spirit that we should work together, especially when we see different jurisdictions. We are based in Singapore. Some people are based in US. Some people are based in Europe. Uh, uh, the reason that we want to go ahead and uh, apply to the sandbox program here is that we think Singapore can be a hub um, for for let's say, Southeast Asia or even Asia. And I think there's a lot of interest from the investors in this region to have opportunities like this to trade, let's say, fractionalized uh, equities. So that's sort of, you know, the, the, the basically the main consideration behind this effort. Got it. That makes sense. And just switching over to the advertising, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, what are the benefits of putting say, programmatic advertising on a public blockchain. I mean, my concern for the businesses is 
you know, our business is going to be, is it going to be so transparent that businesses are sharing their profit margins? I feel like that might be an issue or, or does it not go that deep and more of the issue you're solving is the multiple intermediaries here? Yeah, so I think you pointed out uh, a very important um, matter, which needs to be sort of actually decided by people participating in these kind of uh, efforts. It's not going to be a, a all or nothing choice whether you should put all data on the on the public blockchain or should put nothing. I feel that uh, um, transparency is a relative term. People have to feel comfortable uh, with the level of transparency. So I do not foresee that um, you know the industry players uh, putting everything about that digital advertising campaign on the public blockchain on day one. They are probably going to put um, data that's not even relevant to any uh, uh, identities, for example. Um, But then they put just enough data so that uh, it guarantees uh, some transparency, some immutability of other data that they may share only among themselves. So that's my my personal take on this. That's how I see this is going to work. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So I know, and I think there's a Seeking Alpha article where you where you talk about um, that you think in 2019 we're going to see like a wave of new use cases come out um, using blockchain. Do you think that it's basically set to say gaming and advertising and security tokens, or or do you expect other use cases you know beyond this? I, I, I can't be 100% sure that what exactly are going to be, you know, the use cases being adopted. Um, so um, gaming, digital advertising, secret tokens are definitely very interesting directions. But whether you are going to see massive adoptions of this in 2019 or 2020, that, that nobody knows. But also there can be other interesting use cases. Uh, so for example, I'm personally very interested in understanding um, those sort of um, use cases that involve communities. So, so this is not like the general blockchain community. This can be a very specific closed community, let's say people um, in, a, in a fan club. So nowadays they are already making contributions. They already have their own governance model. And then, um, then you know, it's a very close net uh, sort of ecosystem. But they are largely doing this uh, on a voluntary basis. But if you can find ways to say uh, the contribution they make uh, to that kind of community can be incentivized or can even be compensated when such contribution really makes a big deal to the entire community. I think that can be um, very interesting as well. That that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I just um, I was reading yesterday about uh, the ETH trader Reddit making that donut token to kind of like incentivize comments, and uh, you know a lot of people thought it was a joke. I thought it was kind of interesting, but I don't know how much that was shared around. Sorry, what was that? It was uh, basically a Reddit uh, community for Ethereum. The the trading community created a, a token called the Donut, mm-hmm. um, basically with their own community. But you know, just switching gears back to you guys. I mean, um, you know, back to your network itself. You guys have your Zill token. What exactly is the token used for in the network? It's very uh, similar to uh, Ether. So you you spend Ether so that you can uh, send transactions or run smart contracts on Ethereum. So here, here is very similar. Uh, Zero will, will feel the gas fees for transactions and smart contracts on, on, on Zilliqa. Got it. And is there high inflation for Zill tokens annually, or is it similar to Bitcoin and Ethereum, around, around 4 to 5%? Um, so we have in total 21 billion tokens 
um, so 40% of uh, such tokens are for mining rewards. We have not, you know, decided exactly how much, how many tokens we're going to issue for mining rewards every, every year. But I think for the first year, it's going to be around 4% ballpark number. Got it. That's interesting. Yeah, I did a, a Tezos deep dive and an Ethereum report on, on the site. And um, basically, Ethereum's kind of trying to target under a percent and Tezos is kind of around five and a half percent. And I just I have concerns that Ethereum won't be able to attract stakers if they're only earning half a percent. So I, I definitely think that has to be higher. So I think your your goal at four or five percent, I think, makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, but you know, if we do four percent every year, then forty percent is for ten years. We uh, it's very hard for us to predict closer to that. You know, ten year end, what will happen? I think you know we'll just start with four percent. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes more sense. And and just I know we didn't talk too much about security, and and that's obviously a key concern here. You know, how do you think about security or you know fifty one percent attacks, or just keeping the network safe? Yeah, I think in general, um, security is, is one of the top concerns for any blockchain um, because blockchain is perceived to be a very trusted source of information. But if security is compromised, you know, that's going to be a big issue. That's why, you know, when we first launched our Zilliqa network, uh, the mainnet, we are going to be very mindful about security. We're going to be very conservative in setting certain parameters. We're going to have a lot of protection mechanisms, a lot of fallback mechanisms, you know, always security uh, in the center of our consideration. Um, I think I think sometimes we just have no choice. We have to be very careful about it. Um, for existing networks, um, yes, for proof-of-work-based networks, 51% attack is definitely a concern. Um, but there, there are also different considerations of this. So sometimes people feel that uh, to really solve this problem, you either have like a huge um, hashing power in the network or you sort of have to have a combination between a very decentralized uh, system and some of the more centralized mechanisms just to mitigate um, issues or risks from 51% attacks. Got it. That makes that makes sense. And, you know, just switching over, I'm really interested in, in funding at these times because we're seeing a bear market, some projects um, run out of money or, or, you know, they don't really have a, a great way to solve funding. You know, one of my favorite projects that that attempts to solve this is Decred, which I, full disclosure, I own Decred tokens, um, where part of their block award goes in the foundation and token holders vote on that. I have an analysis on the site on this, but, uh, you know, it looks like you guys, I don't know if this is accurate, but on, on your Masari page, I, I saw your your wallet. It looks like you guys have a million bucks in Ether left, Ether left. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but, you know, how do you think about long-term funding for the project? So we have uh, enough uh, funding uh, for the project for the next few years. That's what we uh, raised for. We raised uh, about 22 million USD um, to fund the projects for several years to develop, fully develop the platform as well as have enough sort of resources to drive adoption. So so we are still like that in a sense. Although the, the overall market conditions are different, uh, you know, these conditions do not necessarily affect uh, our runway. Um, but of course, um, you know, under different market conditions, people may have different sentiments. Uh, when we try to uh, drive adoption, especially mainstream adoption onto the blockchain, um, you know, if people keep thinking that this is just a bubble, 
that has just busted that that's you know, of course going to make make life a little difficult for everyone including us but otherwise you know we we are not really affected got it that makes sense and you know just closing out two last questions for you i mean what are the main issues that you that you get from the community like what's the pushback that you get about zilica that you know you have a hard time answering or, or you can't answer yet i'm interested in you know what the bears are saying about zilica so i think in general our community has been very very supportive and i sometimes because i i talk to other projects i heard you know um how the sort of interact with other communities but i think our interactions with our community have been really really very healthy um but of course sometimes some community members um do feel a little bit you know impatient in terms of progress but i also feel that uh, building a, a a new blockchain from scratch not really you know uh, leveraging our existing code base uh, is is a very tough journey uh, we we have to sort of uh, work very closely with the community and um, be together just throughout the journey so that's something we're trying to uh, help some of the community members to understand because you know we are here we are very committed it's just like you know sometimes developing difficult technologies take a little bit of a while yeah that makes sense and and i mean I mean, that's, that's to say though, I mean, building new blockchain is one thing, but I mean, there's projects out there that are looking to completely rebuild their blockchains as well. I mean, I own tokens and ether, uh, full disclosures on the show notes, but you know, with serenity, they're basically, they're starting from scratch as well. Mm. Uh, but you know, back to you guys, I mean, is there anything that I forgot to ask you, Sishu, or anything you want to talk about? I know we were all over the place, but, uh, my goal is to get all the info I can in an hour. <laughs> I think I think it's good to be all over the place. It's, it's been a, a quite comprehensive conversation. I I do not have anything to add. That's awesome. Well, Sishu, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, and best of luck with the main net. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please rate, review, and share the podcast so other people find it. And be sure to visit 51pct.io and enter your email to get our research alerts delivered directly in your inbox. <music>